Welcome to another episode of Generation Elect, the only political podcast run by kids. And today we have a quad pod. Yes, you heard that right. We have not one, not two, not three, but four of the very best political analysts around to talk today about Kamala Harris's sudden departure from the 2020 presidential race and why it happened. We'll also discuss Democrats preparing articles of impeachment and how they can best win this impeachment saga. I'm Henry Reichman, and I'm joined today by my fantastic co-host, Griffin Roeder. Griffin, how's your week been? Oh, well, it's been a pretty nice week. I had an enjoyable Thanksgiving. I was able to push through into December in school. Uh, came off the heels of a track meet this morning. That one was not fun. How'd it go? Pretty badly. I'm sorry to hear that. I'm also joined today by another familiar voice on the podcast, Jack Newell. How's it going? Going well, Henry. How about you? Really great. Good to hear. Um, finally, the fourth member of our team is back on the pod after a few months. It's Adam Cohn. Great to have you on, Adam. Oh, thanks for having me on again. Excited to be here. Really good to hear. And before we begin, I'd like to remind everybody to rate our podcast on iTunes. It helps, it helps people find us. If you really like us, write a review. That'd be great. Anyways, let's get to the news this week. We start with Kamala Harris. Once regarded as a potential 2020 frontrunner, the California senator has experienced a fall from grace, as some critical mistakes, some poor debates, and questions looming over a past have caused her to withdraw from the race Tuesday. What do we think? Griffin, you start. Well, Kamala Harris. Now, one year ago on CNN, there was this article posted that ranked uh, potential 2020 candidates, because at the time, no one big was running, and it ranked like how powerful they would be against Trump. Now, interestingly enough, the one and two were Kamala Harris and Beto O'Rourke. Now, both of them are gone. Kamala Harris has seen such a fall from grace. I remember in January, all the way back then, seems like ages ago, doing a podcast on her entry into the race. And we thought that she could be a really strong candidate, perhaps the nominee. However... Her debate performance against Tulsi Gabbard back in July, where Tulsi Gabbard exposed her criminal justice record, I think that kind of was the beginning of the end for Kamala Harris. Jack, what do you think about Kamala overall? Yeah, so just touching lightly on what Griffin said earlier, I mean, Kamala peaked so high with that debate performance against uh, Biden in one of the first debates, but she's just really seen a steady decline. And the Gabbard uh, Kamala exchange was pretty important, in my opinion, because it really did highlight her hypocrisy regarding criminal justice issues, because she kind of made criminal justice one of the cornerstones of her campaign. Yet many of the policies she advocated for this cycle, she was against as California attorney general, including things like higher cash bails. She was against legal weed. She was against independent investigations for police shootings as early or as recent as 2014. And Adam, I know you also do have a very strong opinion on Kamala Harris and her criminal justice. What do you think overall about how her presidential campaign went? Uh, I think that, as Jack said, she peaked in the first debate. And then in the second debate that she was in, um, I was excited because she was going against Joe Biden again. And it just seemed like. She tried to do the same exact thing that she did in the first debate, direct everything after Biden, and Biden was a lot more prepared. And then I think that's, like uh, Griffin said earlier, that her Tulsi exchange was the beginning of the end. I think that was when people first started to realize that maybe she wasn't as good of a debater as we all saw in the first debate. Yeah, I mean... I, for one, have a different opinion, and feel free to debate me on this after I finish my little monologue here. But, like, I'm, incredible, I'm incredibly mad that her campaign went this way. And, I mean, yeah, you do bring up good points. Her debate performance against Tulsi Gabbard was really terrible. She let the Hawaiian congresswoman completely rip her apart. And too many questions were raised about her prosecu- prosecutorial career. But for me, those don't matter too much for me. She should have been our nominee, I think. Democrats are too divided between the moderates and the progressives, and I'm worried that our nominee will be hated by a block of the party. So we should have looked at this young, diverse, smart candidate who's neither moderate or progressive, and she has the potential to unite us all. I'm frustrated that we won't get that, and I think her campaign wasn't strong, but her candidacy was. See, the the issue with that that stance, in my opinion, Henry, is that, to me, Kamala didn't really have a good identity. Because as you said, you know, she wasn't on the more moderate ring of the party with Joe Biden and Klobuchar. She wasn't more on the left with Biden and Warren. 
and then she put herself in the middle of those two, which I think is important for people who maybe don't like those two sides. But, you know, she it felt like she wasn't really necessarily believing in some of the issues she was talking about. And that criminal justice record that she had while being a attorney general of California, it really put me off her because I, I didn't feel like she was a genuine contender for the party. Can I make a comment? I mean, yeah, of course. So you don't have to ask. So one thing I feel that Kamala Harris did is she was able to tap into the outrage of the black community, especially when she attacked Joe Biden back in June. Uh, she was really able to tap into the outrage of the black community. However, one mistake that she made is, although she was able to tap into the outrage of the black community, she didn't really offer a solution. Like she could give reasons for why African Americans shouldn't vote for Joe Biden. But she didn't give reasons for why African-Americans should vote for her, necessarily. That's true, but as a president, I have more confidence that Kamala Harris would do more on racial issues than someone like Joe Biden. And, I mean, I mean, we go back to your prosecutorial career. That Many words have been said about that. But for those key issues like that, I'm, I think that Kamala would have a steady plan for that. Whether it's stopping stop and frisk or, or making police relationships better. But I do think that she would have made smart moves on that. I do want to go back to like the spectrum of moderates and progressives, though. It's, um, it's unfortunate that Democrats isolated the one candidate in between them because we see Biden and Buttigieg on more the moderate side you know they're very pragmatic but and then you see Warren and Sanders you know very progressive socialist and I stand somewhere in the middle it's sad that there's no one there to represent me anymore really because I my views are kind of in the middle of that but um you know like we talk about her attacking Joe Biden in in the debate uh Adam do you think that was a net positive for her overall I think that it was I think that you know in the first debate it really showed that she could, she can debate well, and that it really got a lot of attention on her. Like, I didn't know as much about her um, pre- before that debate, and then after that, she was all over. It was her breakout performance, and I think that she could have used that in a much more positive way for her campaign. And I think that she just wasn't able to do that, and I think that's what ultimately led to her downfall. I think an interesting point in quick point in regards to what Henry and Griffin were saying earlier is that despite Kamala kind of attacking Biden and suggesting maybe it wouldn't be great for the African-American community, Biden among the current candidates in the field seems to be the candidate with the most African-American support. Yeah. So I don't know how much damage she actually did to him. And as far as your view on, you know, she being the middle ground of the party, Henry, I would argue that there isn't as much, um, divisiveness in the party as you may think i think it's the moderates now the quote moderates are really more traditional democrats in years past it's just the left side of the party is moving further left and further left i think there is divisiveness though i don't think we've seen bernie sanders and elizabeth warren attack each other i don't think we've seen biden and Buttigieg attack each other much i think there's a clear line you can draw but with kamala attacking joe biden I mean, Griffin, isn't there an argument to be made that if she didn't put herself on the map by attacking Biden, she would never have been targeted by Tulsi in the second debate? Uh, I I could agree with that, because actually, if you look at a graphical summary of Kamala's poll numbers, she actually was doing quite poorly around right before the June debate. And then she surged. And um, but then by like July, August, after that debate with Gabbard, she started falling and falling. Uh, also, an interesting point to make, back in the fourth debate, um, she was going off on a tangent where she wanted Donald Trump to be banned from Twitter. Thing is, undecided voters aren't really going to care about that that much. I mean, your average American probably does not care about Trump's Twitter as much as they care about issues that are facing them, like healthcare, education, immigration, the economy. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's totally a main reason why Kamala's campaign failed. You look at someone like Elizabeth Warren, who's fighting for the economy, fighting for jobs. I think that's an issue that resonates with many Americans right now. And even the issues that someone like Pete Buttigieg, you know, um, gun, gun violence, other issues that Buttigieg is standing up for, like those resonate more with Americans than some of the weird little things Kamala would talk about that were kind of too generalized. 
I think Camilla's Camilla's goal uh, after the first debate was to try to reproduce some of those viral eye-catching moments that really boosted her up in the polls. And she really kind of failed to do that. And I think her attempt to do that in the long run, I don't know if it benefited her because as you said, she began focusing on issues that maybe everyone wouldn't care about. She was, you know, she was, I don't think she was looking at the big picture. Yeah. I mean, out of how much do you think that uh, her prosecutorial record helped? I mean, uh, hurt her in her campaign. Well, I think that um, everyone on the stage is going to have at some point made a unfortunate decision. And sometimes, especially with someone like Biden, who's that much older, he has a lot of records going back. And I think that especially because she calls him out on his record, I think that her having the spotty record that she does ultimately um, was a reason that she wasn't able to fully take down Biden. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, but I mean, like, it's frustrating for me, who was a Kamala Harris supporter for a chunk of the primaries, that her prosecutorial record really just took down her campaign. I don't think the fact that she contradicted herself on marijuana 20 years ago hinders her ability to govern as a president effectively. I mean, what we should care about is her plans on climate change and gun control and maybe being a bit too harsh on on uh, prisoners, no, no matter how wrong that is, really doesn't like negatively affect what she can do for this country. So I think that the cons for her just seem blown out of proportion. But, I mean, Henry, earlier you were discussing how much you believe she could have done for criminal justice issues. And now it seems like you're saying, you know, her past record, which is a huge indicator of future success on criminal justice, isn't that important. So for for me, I I do think it was important, especially as it, as she made it one of the cornerstones of her campaign. And she tried to champion herself as a warrior for criminal justice. She shouldn't have made it a cornerstone of her it, campaign because it's her weak point, too. But Griffin, where, do you, where did you see, like, did you... What are your thoughts on her record as a prosecutor? Um, I think, it, quite frankly, Kamala's Her- Harris's record as a prosecutor is shameful. I do not agree with um, her stance on mar- well, her previous stance on marijuana. In fact, yeah. she actually held it not twenty years ago, but as recently as twenty fourteen, when she was uh, there was an interview done on Harris by a reporter who mentioned uh, in the twenty fourteen California Attorney General race. Um, the reporter mentioned to Harris, uh, your Republican opponent supports the legalization of marijuana. Do you? And she kind of laughed and said, well, he can have his own opinions, which subtly implies that she doesn't support the legalization of marijuana. And this was 2014, which is around, I, I, I wouldn't say marijuana legalization was that popular in 2014, However, that's when some states like Oregon and Washington actually legalize marijuana. Um, marijuana legalization is very popular now amongst the American populace. Uh, medical marijuana legalization is like universally supported. So, oh, of course, yeah. I mean, I feel actually more mixed than your average Democrat on marijuana legalization. It's an issue that I flip flopped on a few mm. times, but um, I see both sides really clearly, and it's tough for me to make a decision. But um, I mean, Adam. Marijuana was used by Tulsi Gabbard, you know, as her ploy to take down Kamala. Yeah. Do you think Tulsi's attack was pretty much the sole reason why public opinion shifted on Kamala? I don't think it was. I think that for me personally, I saw the attack. Everyone, people who watched the debate, they saw the attack, but they also saw something else. They saw Kamala. She had a lack of confidence after the first debates. It felt like she stopped sort of attacking she didn't go for the attack. She, it felt like she knew her campaign was falling, and that uh, it's. And I think that that sort of uh, caused a lack of confidence. And I think that people started to realize that hey, maybe it was a fluke performance that got her all of this, you know, good recognition. And I, maybe that's not who she really is as a, as a debater. Well, yeah, I hope that wouldn't be the case, and I hope that you know, I hope that her personality as a debater isn't a defining factor of her campaign but was it jack or like is there yeah so i i don't i think the reason she gained so much support originally and i know we've discussed this before is is that moment with biden 
And that was such that was that was the defining moment of her campaign. Like when you're when we think about this years later, I think that'll be the moment we think about. I think overall, I do think the debate helped her more than hurt her. And she was doing well during the first debate. I think specifically the marijuana issue that Tulsi Gabbard brought up, I don't think that specifically hurt her. I mean, many leading lawmakers in states currently leading the push to legalize marijuana were against it, you know, as early like two years ago. But I think just the whole, all of it together of her past criminal justice record definitely hurt her when she was focusing okay, on criminal justice Okay, but like, so I think much. you guys have contradicted yourself here. I mean, Griffin, you earlier were talking about how Kamala Harris didn't focus on issues that resonate with the American people. Is marijuana really an issue that resonates with the American people? Um, it, it can resonate with many undecided voters, in fact. Um, well, some people do are marijuana enthusiasts. Yeah, but there, there are healthcare resonates with more people than marijuana. Climate change, gun control, immigration well, do. I don't, I don't see... I think it was blown out of proportion, I'll be honest. I, I think, like I said, I don't think the specific marijuana issue was what killed her campaign because many lawmakers have been against it and changed their tune in the space of two years. I think the whole, the whole, her whole time as an attorney general from many bad decisions, including supporting the higher cash bills, including as early or as late as 2014, being against independent investigations for police shootings, the whole, her whole tenure as AG was what hurt her, not specifically marijuana. Yeah, and I do see that. In my opinion. I do see that. And she had her tenure before running was, and before being a senator, was definitely a spotty at best. But, um, yeah, so obviously now Kamala will not be in the December debate. The December debate will be, you know, the four candidates who we think, we actually, who we think actually have a shot at this, which is Biden, Peter Judge, Sanders, and Warren, plus, as of now, Klobuchar and Tom Steyer. Um, Adam, is it a, a problem? Is it really like a problem for you or for the democratic party that the debate field is now all white candidates especially in the democratic party um i think that it it does say something and i think that you know a lot of people including myself after obama won it was we were hoping that it could be a stepping stone for more racially uh diverse candidates but it's good that um among those warren is a woman showing that it, they do have some diversity. Andrew Yang is still in the mix, which is a good thing. But I think that Kamala and being... And Judge. You know, yeah, he's, yeah. yeah, he's gay. And so mm-hmm. I think that there is a good amount of diversity. But I think that overall, um, I think that there could have been more diversity. But, you know, the people w- running are majority white. So I think that Kamala yeah. was the... Um, only African-American candidate who was on this, who was in, I think, the no, November debate. Well, I mean, Griffin, like, yeah, Cor- Booker. Cory Booker. Yeah, well, yeah Cory I mean, Booker. Yeah, so Cory Booker, Julian Castro, Tulsi Gabbard are all uh, racially... Uh, and Andrew minor- Yang. And Andrew Yang, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, they're all yeah. racial minorities, and none of them have qualified for the, for the December debate. Like, is this not good on the Democratic Party that someone like Tom Steyer is qualified? And get these other people. Well, first, not. Uh, don't jump to conclusions yet. There's actually still a chance for Gabbard and Yang to qualify. They need one more poll uh, with the specific DNC qualifications, which is 4% or more or um, 6% or more in an early state. So Yang and Gabbard each need only one more poll. And if they get it by Thursday, they're in. But anyhow... Uh, I guess this is kind of a controversial statement, but I, well, not all presidential campaigns are created equal. Some are waged better than others. Uh, Some just aren't really good campaigns. Um, Kamala Harris uh, do not feel waged a very successful campaign for the presidency. Mm. Julian Castro, who is um, one of our, who is formerly a rising star, he, after the September debate where he called out Biden on his age um, indirectly, that really was a low took blow a and took yeah. a hit. Um, Cory Booker, who's still in the race but barely clinging on because he's low on cash, 
I feel like Cory Booker could have actually been a very strong candidate. Like, probably. I, agree. I feel like if he changed his strategy, he could have actually been probably about a fourth place candidate, probably head uh, of Buttigieg even. If he, In a tier one, yeah. Uh, if, if he had a different strategy, which is um, going for the money first. So at Buttigieg, one reason why Buttigieg is fourth right now, he was like sixth, fifth, fifth earlier. The reason why Buttigieg is now in fourth and actually closing in on Sanders and Warren is he actually was very wise when it came to money. He actually raised a ton of money in the earlier half of 2019. And although the pol- he wasn't really polling as high, he was polling around 4 or 5%. However, he was raising bucket loads of money. And then as the fall came around, he used that money and blitzed, especially in key early yeah. states like Iowa and New Hampshire. Iowa and New Hampshire, yes, totally. He blitzed in Iowa and New Hampshire, and as he took the lead in Iowa and came up in New Hampshire, people were starting to realize, hey, Mayor Pete could actually become the nominee. And if he wins pe- those two like states. If he yeah. wins those two states. So more people started to support him, and his polling numbers went up. And they're on a continued trend upwards. So had now, Booker utilized the same strategy, he would have likely been there. Yeah, it is tough to say. But, um, yeah, there's one last nuance I do want to talk about with Kamala before we move on to other stuff. Um, electability was an interesting spot for her. I mean, Jack, there's, there's all these, like, narratives going around, like, oh, like, you know, like an African-American woman might not beat Trump. Like, what do you think about that electability argument? I think that wasn't a strong electability yeah. argument. Yeah. Um, we've seen African-American candidates win before. We've seen African-American woman candidates win before. In key states such as Alabama, we've seen uh, African-American woman voters turn out and be a huge indicator in the race. One thing I'd like to bring up with Kamala, and I'd like to hear your guys' thoughts mm-hmm. on, is she... Many people, uh, it was one of the trending topics on Twitter after she announced she dropped out, wanted uh, her to become the running mate or, if the Democratic nominee won, the Attorney General of the United States. I mean, Adam, what do you think? Adam? Yeah, Adam, what do you think about running mate, AG? Um, I think that Kamala Harris, I think that it would be a, a good fit for her. I think that, you know... I think that uh, she's she hasn't she's been fine as as a senator, and I think that she had a decently successful, at least early part of her campaign. So, I think that it would be good, and I think that it would get diversity with someone like, you know, Joe Biden. Not saying that he would choose her as her, as his running mate, but someone like that, or Buttigieg even. But yeah, no, I mean like. Yeah, I, I want her to be involved in this Democratic ticket somehow. I think AG would be the best fit for her since she's a prosecutor. But even if she's a prosecutor, sorry, prosecutor, I think that maybe the best fit for her should have been being on the main stage against Donald Trump. I mean, she, she prosecuted for-profit colleges, and he ran one. She prosecuted sex criminals. He is one. So I think Kamala would have taken Donald Trump by the throat in a debate. Well, here's here's my issue. So first of all, as we, I mean, I'm sure we've discussed this enough, but I don't think Kamala was necessarily the best candidate. But as far as the attorney general, vice president argument, the problem with that is, in my opinion, she doesn't really fit any of the front runner candidates well. I think I agree. Biden Kamala ticket would have been very balanced, very good. But I don't see Biden picking her anymore after the damage she inflicted on his campaign. And then it's not really a balanced ticket should a more left-leaning uh, woman wins, such as Warren. Even if Bernie wins, I'm still concerned a little bit about the, the balance of that ticket. The ticket should be cross-gender, I think. And if they can, be cross-race, cross, cross race too. I think that um, Joe Biden, Joe Biden, if he wins, the perfect vice president for him is someone people aren't talking about. Uh, Griffin, you probably know who she is. but um, Keisha... No, no, not Timmy oh, Duckworth. Oh, 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 Keisha Lance Bottoms. Mayor she of Atlanta, right? Mayor of Atlanta. She's a black woman. She's fantastic. She's young. I think she should be the vice president. But, um, yeah, that'd be interesting. 
Oh, I was but thinking you... Tammy Duckworth, who is the Asian American woman who is a uh, double amputee, a veteran of the Iraq War, and currently serving in the Senate from Illinois. Yeah, that would be a great pick, too. So would Stacey Abrams. So, yeah, to close off this Kamala 2020 discussion, does Kamala have a future in a presidential race, or has she shot her shot? Mm, that's a very good question. Yeah, I mean, what do you think, Griffin? Well, I guess we'll go around. Like, yeah. Well, let's see here. Now, hypothetically, let's say a Democrat is elected president in 2020, whether it be Biden, Sanders, Warren, Buttigieg. Okay, so let's say Kamala Harris stays in the Senate. If she wants to run for president in 2024, uh, she'd have to likely give up her Senate seat, which isn't always worth consideration. However, she could be vice president. However, one thing about the vice presidency is you don't really do much anything unless there's a Senate tie or the president dies or resigns. Uh, Attorney General, she would have much more of an impact, uh, especially considering her previous record and that uh, the Attorney General, uh, you know, they can become very influential people. Uh, Let's say 2024 or 2028, Ooh, I mean, we... Adam, will we be talking about it in a future Kamala run? Yeah, I think Should we, we be? I think I think we will be. I think, you know, you saw Hillary Clinton run again eight years later and win the nomination. I think that I don't think Kamala's done. I think she's in what, her first term as a senator. I think that this isn't the last that we'll be hearing from her. I think she needs to take a good long reflection at look in the mirror at how her campaign went and the highs and lows of it. And I think she can come back. And I think that if she comes back better and debates better and she, you know, talks about ish different and more important issues to the American people, I think that she's a force to be reckoned with in the future. Yeah. I mean, Jack. Yeah. So here, here's my issue with the possibility of a future Kamala run. Right. So, it really depends hugely on this 2020 race, because if a Democrat wins, unless it's, um, you know, Biden, who might uh, only seek one term due to his age, I don't think she's going to run against the incumbent Democrat. No, of course not. No, 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 no one's going to so, launch a primary Not challenge. until 2028. Right. But, then, but then if the left side of the wing, let's say, you know, someone like Elizabeth Warren wins the nomination this year but loses to Donald Trump... I don't think Camilla will be that appealing in 2024 and will want to select someone more moderate. And let's say, you know, a Democrat wins 2028, Camilla wants to run. I don't know if she'll still be as much of a force as she is. There's now. one candidate in this race who I think will be president someday, but not 2020. And I think that's Pete Buttigieg. Like, this is not his last yeah, I think presidential I agree with run, that. Pete Buttigieg. I, I think but, I agree with that. Because he has so, so, so many places to go, oh. considering he's only mayor of South yeah. Bend right now. Yep. He so many places to go senate in two years possibly that, yeah but yeah so that will cap off our Kamala discussion we've talked about it many talked about it many times on the podcast i hope it's not the last time we talk about her on this podcast but her 2020 campaign is over and we move mm-hmm. on so the next uh, topic we'll be talking about is impeachment and um on thursday democrats and nancy pelosi announced that they will set up articles of impeachment to impeach donald trump the inquiry is over. Impeachment is officially Here happening. Here we go. Happening now. It's historic. Yep. I mean, Adam, we haven't had you on to talk impeachment yet. What are your overall thoughts on Democrats making this thing official and just impeachment overall? I think that it's not going to be successful, and I'll tell you why. I think that we've seen Trump, what he has said. He has he's had his locker room talk. He's had his Stormy Daniels situation. He's had what he said about John McCain, which I know angered uh, veterans of the Vietnam War, what he said about John McCain actually being captured. And I think that, you know, now he goes and asks a foreign government for dirt on a um, potential uh, opposer to him in the in the next election. And I think that the Republicans, they're not going to change because of this. I think they seem the Republican Party has shifted so that Donald Trump is the head of it. And I think that they're there's not going to be enough Republicans to leave their party ground with the risk of being ostracized to uh, really make this go ahead. I agree. Yeah, I mean, Adam, just, yeah, I agree. 
100%. I mean, Adam, like, besides, like, you know, debating whether this will be successful now, which we can do later, like, you think impeachment is deserved, right? Yeah, I, th- like, I we think... Should, we, we should be doing yeah, this. Yeah, I think yeah. personally, as a Democrat, of course, that he is guilty and he should be removed from office, but do I think realistically that's going to happen? No. Yeah, and I mean, like, Jack, the evidence is overwhelmingly um, tilted against Trump. We've had Mulvaney and Sondland confirm that there was a quid pro quo. We've had so much come out against Donald Trump. Why aren't the Republicans, the people in control of removing Donald Trump, realizing that, like, you know, this is serious and this is happening? I think a large part of it, you know, depend uh, is related to what Adam said. I mean, you saw, obviously, they are different different offenses, but you saw, you know, the locker room talk thing earlier in the campaign with Donald Trump saying that, and a good portion of Republicans, you know, called it disgusting, said they wouldn't support him, yet, you know, a month later, they see him, you know, it didn't affect him that much, and they get right back on it. So I'm, if I'm a Republican right now, I'm seriously questioning whether this will affect Trump. And, and if you do, one, one last quick thing. Yeah. And if you do decide to impeach Trump, and let's say it's not successful, right? You mm-hmm. angered his base of the party. And now you're wondering if his base will support you in your own reelection, you know, as a representative or a senator. Exactly. Yeah, and I heard this perfect analogy the other day. You're, you're talking about all these terrible things that Trump has done, how he's come back from it. Donald Trump is like a, one of those squishy balls. You can squish it and beat it in how much you ever want. But then when you let go of it, it'll all just come back to normal. It's absolutely crazy what can happen if he shot someone on Fifth Avenue. Like, he would not get in trouble. And the thing is, those Fifth Avenue voters well, for Donald Trump will stick with him no matter what happens. And that's the base he has. That's the base that's, you know, really controlling every Republican in the Senate and in the House. And that's why they're so afraid to go against him. Yep. Yeah, I mean, Adam, did you have something to say? Or... Um. I just think that, again, you know, the Republican base, they've completely shifted. They lost to Obama, who was the first African-American to be elected, and they lost to him twice. And those weren't particularly close. And I think that they realize that they need a candidate who their entire base can get around and who they will all support. And despite his many flaws, he's been able to beat the candidates that we put out in Hillary Clinton. And I think that going back to the... Um, Democratic primaries, the Democrats need a candidate like that. I mean, gr- not Griffin, one you... with the f- flaws of Trump, but one who can, like, get the base Excited. motivated. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, oh gosh, what was I about to say, damn it. Um, I am, I literally had something in my mind. Um, oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, All right. We, we, yeah, okay. We I'm so back. sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think uh, if we're talking... Oh, I my goodness. Democrats... I, just, I just remembered. Okay. Oh, good. All right. um, yeah, so Griffin... Uh, what was it? It was... Um... You got this. Okay. <laughs> so do you think that... Here's my question. Uh, I'm, perfect. I'm praising it. So do you think that uh, every Republican knows in the back of their mind that Trump did something wrong with Ukraine? Or are they so morally off target that they can't even realize that? I feel that there may be a few Republicans. Uh, some on the more moderate side, especially in the Senate say Lisa Murkowski or Susan Collins or Mitt Romney, they are like the moderate voices of the Republican Party in the Senate. Similarly, there are some of those same, like very similar voices in the House, like Will Hurd and John Katko and Brian Fitzpatrick. They're moderate voices who, they're generally from states that aren't really as, states or congressional districts that aren't as, uh, friendly to Donald Trump. Like, for example, some of the aforementioned members of Congress are from swing districts, uh, suburban districts, rather, that actually um, mostly anti-Trump. Uh, they, they are like the Clinton Republican districts, as I call them. Uh, also, if you look at, like, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, Mitt Romney, well, call, uh, Murkowski is from Alaska, which, although a Republican state, is a very... It's the best state. Well, it's, like, very independent-minded. They have a lot of independents, and they aren't really... They have a lot of libertarians. Like, like, I mean, I go out there every summer, and uh, yeah. there are, like, liberals there. Like, I mean, I go to, like, some political events in Alaska because my grandparents, like, take me there. Yep. But, like, there are liberals there, but it's a lot of really, like, 
whack people. Oh, but. yeah. I mean, Alaska doesn't <laughs> okay. have sales or income tax. They get all their but, money from No, there are a lot of, like, crazy, crazy, like, um, you know, zero government, you know, will support Donald Trump, but we're not that enthusiastic about him. It's an interesting thing was going yeah. on there. But, like, Jack, or Jack, do you think that, like, who's the most MAGA person in Congress? Someone like Matt Gates, maybe. Do you think Matt Gates knows that Trump did something wrong? You know, I, I think that would it be a different candidate than yes but some of these people i think most of them really this is all an act i really think that most of these um republicans realize that he's doing bad stuff but in order for you know their political careers they're sticking by him you know some of the true true mega republicans maybe they're blinded by their loyalty so they don't actually think he did something wrong but i think most realize what he did was wrong but in order for political expediency, they're sticking yeah, by Yeah, so let's get to the articles. The articles which are being written by the House uh, Judiciary Committee right now, in the, intel- in the intelligence, I believe, uh, detail, you know, what Donald Trump did, the quid pro quo, calling with Ukraine. There will, they will also detail some new stuff, which is they had phone calls extrapolated from Verizon that show conversations between Rudy Giuliani and the Office of Budget and Management, which is the office that freezes Ukraine aid. So, so- yeah. Just a quick disclaimer with that. I mean, you know, CNN put out an article a day or two ago saying that, you know, those calls actually may not be true. They could have just been to the White House, not necessarily the OMB. But so we don't know for sure whether those calls actually were were true. Yeah, we do know that um, Devin Nunes, Congressman Devin Nunes, did talk to Lev Parnas on the phone for nine minutes. Lev Parnas is um, Rudy Giuliani's assistant he is um from either ukraine or russia i believe and uh they and he is the guy orchestrating the dirt on biden so if devin nunes who is not even part of the trump administration is in the loop on this then maybe this stretches wider than we thought um i mean adam like we're gonna have a senate trial will the senate trial help the democrats overall for her uh i think it's I don't think it's going to affect them. I mean, it's pretty obvious what's going to happen that, of course, you know, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republicans, it's not going to get past them. And I think that while it won't, it obviously won't help the Democrats, I don't, I don't think it's going to hurt them really at all. Yeah, there was an argument to say that, like, it would hurt the candidates. But after we see all these Democratic wins in like Louisiana and Kentucky, yeah, that argument might have been extinguished a bit. I mean, Griffin, like, is there a path to Donald Trump not being president after this? I believe there is a path, but it is a very, slim. very slim path. Like, as slim as it gets, like, slim Jim slim. Well, I mean, there was a slim <laughs> path to Trump winning the Republican nomination four years ago. Well, at this not gonna time. Up, yeah. well, well, in December, I think... but not in, like, February. Um, I think uh, just quickly touching on the Democratic strategy in regards to the articles of impeachment. First, I mean, I think Pelosi, uh, Speaker Pelosi did a masterclass in putting most of the, you know, important impeachment, you know, parts of the process in intelligence and with Adam Schiff, who's really proven to be a really good champion for the Democratic Party. But I also think currently, in regards to the articles of impeachment, Republicans are really trying to focus on, you know, constitutionality in determining whether it was a high crime or misdemeanor. And while Dems are making case of, you know, the bribery in regards to, you know, the Ukraine-Biden thing, they're also focusing more on big picture and, you know, abusive power, which I think will be better for the public to understand. So here is my strategy for an impeachment trial, if I'm Nancy Pelosi. And I've thought a lot about this. Have the trial over the Christmas holidays because people will be at home. There will be relatives over. They'll be watching TV. And everybody can see on the TV how terrible of a president Donald Trump is. Like, I mean, we haven't been able to see the impeachment hearings because they're all at school, right? But if the Democrats schedule this wisely and schedule it the week of the holidays, then everybody will be at home and able to watch all the crimes that Donald Trump has committed. I mean, Adam, what do you think about having that? Is that an element? I mean, yeah, it, we're not going to be in school, but 
for a lot of people, um, over the Christmas holidays, they just want to relax, and it's a break. And so, sure, you know, I think that it's probably better than just holding it in a random week like in we, the middle yeah. of January. I think that it's not it's not like everyone is just going to be like, oh, let's just turn on the impeachment hearings. I mean, I would. I don't know. I don't know if we're going to be be ready by for December, impeachment yeah. in December. I think it's more likely it'll be in mid January. Mm-hmm. Plus, I mean, <laughs> there would be a pretty big opposition by representatives for having to go during the yeah uh, you know Christmas holidays and well or you know winter holidays. I mean, the Republicans have and had, especially from Republicans. The Republicans have had no problem passing key legislation at like three thirty a.m. So. You know? yeah, but the, the these <laughs> holidays are just it's just it just has a different sort of feel to them. They're like yeah, they're the time when you're with your family and they're the time Exactly. You know, All the families yeah, can get together and it's I mean it's cruel, but it's like a genius strategy. Like yeah. we want we want people to see how bad Donald Trump is doing and we want people to know and having them on a time where everybody will be at home snowed in with family with the TV on, I feel like that is what they should be going for. Uh, and yeah, it probably is too soon, but yeah, what are you saying? Uh, one thing I have to say is I don't really think, uh, I agree with Adam here. That isn't really the best strategy. Now, the reason why is I actually used a Senate race from 2010. It was the one where Scott Brown won in Massachusetts. And oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. they had the campaign over the holidays. Now, uh, initially, Scott Brown's Democratic opponent was favored, uh, like, going into the holidays but uh scott brown actually didn't take a lead he wasn't the favorite until basically mid-january um his democratic opponent was uh the favorite uh before christmas break and she was the favorite right at the end of the christmas break so basically i I agree with adam here people aren't gonna watch the news as much over uh, this holiday break that's coming, they're more likely just going to watch Christmas movies, spend time with their family, uh, you know, count down the hours. Yeah. So how... One... Yeah, Jack. Go on, Henry. No, you can go. Okay, I'm sure. Uh, so, um, I mean, like, but Griffin, how do... We, we meaning we, we Democrats, like, I mean, I mean... Okay, I mean, yeah. No. It, but anyways, yeah, how do, okay, uh, how do we, like, how do we convince the people that... We know that this impeachment trial won't work out. So I think the goal of it is to convince the people that Donald Trump is a terrible president and we should vote him out in 2020. Like, how do the Democrats do that? That's actually very hard. Now, it is hard. Uh, Trump's approval rating at lowest, at least from what 538 showed, his lowest average was around 36%. And right now his approval rating is around 40, 41%. So a bit higher. So uh, one thing that you should probably they Democrats should do is target like moderate or neoconservative Republicans who aren't exactly Trump. They might be more establishment, moderate, libertarian, and try to give them reasons why they shouldn't support Trump. Now, use like the impeachment uh, for why Trump's getting impeached as basis instead of other issues because moderate republicans aren't really gonna oppose trump because of domestic issues as such they're gonna oppose trump if he actually if they actually know that he did something terribly wrong yeah i mean this impeachment is tough because you know the whole overall case is harder to understand like the average i've said this before in the podcast the average american doesn't follow politics probably isn't planning to keep up with all these like incredibly like complicated factors but i think that there is a democratic strategy where you go to the people of like general motors and say you know look what trump has done for you absolutely nothing why should we you guys vote for him again i mean jack you had something to say earlier yeah this was more in in regards to this the scheduling of the impeachment which i think is going to be kind of interesting because should it pass the house which is likely the Senate trial will probably fall in late January, maybe mid-February, and many popular Democratic senators on the campaign trail will have to go back to Washington for two or three weeks and, you know, have to be off the campaign trail and pay attention and vote. Pete Buttigieg is um, celebrating, yeah, because that means that he gets well, to so get on Biden, too, because Biden yeah. isn't in Congress right now. 
That is true. I mean, all the non senators are probably happy about that. Adam, do you have any thoughts on how Democrats can win impeachment? Um, I think that, as we have said before, there's a very slight chance that he's able to pull through. And I think that the overall goal of impeachment, as you've been saying, Henry, is to sort of more convince the American people that the person that uh, they elected is not the person that they should have elected and that they should change this in 2020. And I think that the impeachment trials will, depending on uh, what happens, how the people view them and what the people like, what how his approval rating goes down and stuff, if it does go down, I think that will show what might happen in the upcoming election. Yeah, and I think that we should also stress, stress uh, you know, broaden this scenario too. We should say that every vote, that acquits Donald Trump is a vote saying that election interference is okay. If a Republican senator votes and says that Trump shouldn't be impeached, we should stress the point that they basically just implied that it's okay for Russia to interfere with our elections. It's okay, it's okay for Ukraine to interfere with our elections. Like, this is about election interference, and we have to protect our elections, and Mitch McConnell is not doing that, so we need to make that point. Josh, you, I, mean, I mean, Jack, you are sighing. What's the deal? Well, I, I just, I don't know how directly we can tie it to that there's no direct evidence that Trump colluded with Russia as far as this Ukraine thing. I mean, the Ukraine yeah, thing is did. about election interference, right? It's about I don't think a we're foreign be able to power make that case. having an influence in the I election. It, I think it makes sense, but I don't think we're going to be able to make that to the American people. I think the American people will see them as two different issues. They'll see Trump abuse of power, bribery, and then they'll see they'll see election interference. I don't think that is necessarily the best way to go about this. I mean, Griffin, your thoughts about broadening this to election interference? Uh, I think that is a workable strategy. Yeah, it really is. I mean, yeah, the goal before they got caught was to make 2020 better for Trump, presuming that Joe Biden was the nominee. So, and who knows whether they'll do this with Elizabeth Warren or Pete Buttigieg, whoever the nominee is now. It is really... Really weird. Does anyone have any final thoughts on impeachment? Okay. Um, yeah, so we did have a listener question this week. Uh, Jack, do you want to... This is actually really interesting. Jack, do you want to talk about... this? Yeah, yeah, sure. So the listener question was about uh, whether this uh, resolution uh, recognizing... It's a symbolic measure, but it's recognizing um, the Armenian genocide, which was passed in the House... Uh, so right now, the White House is directing senators such as Senator Kramer to block this resolution because they will believe it'll inflame resolutions or relationships with Turkey and their president, Erdogan. Uh, and another interesting part of this was that Senator Kramer was a co-sponsor of a similar resolution last year and is only just at the White House's direction uh, opposed this. Yeah, so, I mean, there is, yeah, so there's evidence that, there's solid evidence that Turkey had a genocide against the Armenian people, and I'm glad that Senators Bob Menendez, who's a Democrat from New Jersey, and Ted Cruz are introducing a bill to formally, formally recognize it as a genocide. Yeah, and Donald Trump has sent the senator to block the bill saying, quote, it's not the right time, but what really is the case is that passing this bill would enrage Turkey President Erdogan so much, and Donald Trump loves being cozy with dictators he loves sucking up to them he loves you know he's basically their puppet in many matters so it's so stupid that they're not passing this bill i mean adam what do you think um i feel that you know the armenian genocide as it was is sort of overlooked throughout history i think that it's something that did happen it was something one and a half million it was completely it was an organized killing a systematic killing which is on a much lower scale of the Holocaust, but it has that feeling of it that it was a systematic blamage of, you know, this minority of doing something. And it's something that, you know, it's sort of overlooked. And I think that it's something that needs to be recognized. Like, they don't, they haven't, they haven't taught us about it in school. Like, it's, it's, just, just, yeah. it's just something that, you know, should definitely be passed. And yeah. I think that, it's stupid not to pass it. I'm so glad to pass the House, but I do want to make a complaint. Uh, Representative Ilhan Omar did not vote to acknowledge this um, genocide. She said, quote, of course we should acknowledge the genocide. I think we should just demand accountability for human rights issues 
consistently, not simply when it suits her political goals. She later said that a true acknowledgement of historical crimes against humanity must include both the heinous genocides of the 20th century, along with earlier mass slaughters like the transatlantic slave trade and Native American genocide, which took the lives of hundreds of millions of indigenous people in this country. So she's basically saying that, like, she doesn't want to recognize it because there are other ones that haven't been recognized. That's that's faulty logic. Whoa. I mean, it's yeah. such a weak. Yeah. Like, I mean, of the, course, we should re- recognize the other ones, too. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't recognize this one. Yeah, like, the, yeah. the government has apologized to the Native Americans. And but yeah, we should recognize. Like, that. yeah, that's that's obviously something that was wrong of us. We, but I think it's just, you know, it's, it's sad it, that she couldn't yeah. vote for this. It also, and we also, as the United States of America, didn't utilize the transatlantic slave trade for that long. In fact, within 40 years of the establishment of the United States in 1776, actually within, by 1808, we um, no longer, we disused the transatlantic slave trade system, although uh, slavery did still exist until the 1860s. Well, we should recognize it as something to condemn. And I yeah, think that yeah, of course we should recognize we should. that. Yeah, but like, I just don't get Omar's logic, which is that don't recognize this one, but recognize the other ones. Yeah, and she talks about how, like, oh, we shouldn't recognize the Armenian one when it suits our political beliefs or whatever. But really, her response of not recognizing Armenia, um, you know, so we can recognize these other ones. I, to me, that strikes me as a more politically expedient uh, response than actually you know, uh, voting for this resolution. And then we can talk about, you know, other possible yeah. genocides or disasters in history. But it's it just makes no sense to me that she wouldn't vote. It's can wildly. I make a comment? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, there is a problem with certain nations that uh, deny genocides that they committed or other atrocities. Like Turkey is denying the Armenian genocide. Japan has denied the Rapinan King in the 30s, Russia has denied the Holodomor. So, really, I don't think it's uh, the best U.S. policy to be entangled in alliances with countries that uh, actively deny genocides that were in the past committed. Now, we- no nation is perfect. Every nation has its flaws. However, uh, we should not align ourselves with nations that have denied genocide. And on top of that, Turkey is also invading. Uh, they invaded the Kurds, the Kurdish state in northern Syria and Iraq. They wanted to attack our Kurdish allies who were critical in defeating the Islamic state in uh, Syria and Iraq. So Turkey, I, I don't believe Turkey is uh, or should be an American ally. I believe Turkey should be kicked out of NATO. I believe that too. So, and I believe that we need to take this and use this to slap it right in the face of Erdogan. Erdogan is a terrible person. And unfortunately, we have a terrible president who is not recognizing this Armenian genocide. He is not dealing with the Kurds in the way he should be. And he's just making everything so much easier to Erdogan, like he does with Vladimir Putin and Jair Bolsonaro and any other dictator in the world that he can align himself with. It's really um, a shame. Yeah. I think that with the Armenian genocide, of course, I think that, you know, Passing the resolution, it, it's of course symbolic, but I think that the way to, the way to make this actually matter is to do things in the future, of course, and to prevent something like this from ever happening again. And that is to, when a dictator or something like that that Trump has been ally- allying himself with, is in line to do something like that, we have to put our foot down. And of course, there hasn't been mass genocides that recently like this but you know it it can always happen yeah we have to send the message to turkey and we have a president who has no plans of doing so we also do have another quick listener question uh this is a candidate we've kind of ignored but someone someone out there wants to know what we do think is the best way for bernie's campaign to improve what do we think attack warren you gotta go after warren you have to explain how you are different from warren and how you are a better candidate than Elizabeth Warren in order to gain Warren supporters that would have otherwise gone to him had Warren not run. How do you do that when you're not? Exactly. <laughs> you're not different well, and you're not a better candidate. Uh, th- there actually are some differences that I have found. 
Um, he wrote the damn bill. Yeah, he, he <laughs> did write the damn bill. And also, uh, one thing that I found fascinating, Elizabeth Warren was a registered Republican until the 1990s. Now, uh, I'm not, like, a Bernie bro. However, Bernie Sanders has held consistent viewpoints over his lifetime. Warren has been... Uh, Warren was a registered Republican for a good portion of her adult life. Uh, She hasn't been consistent on the issues. Bernie could attack her for kind of waffling on Medicare for all, uh, waffling on the Green New Deal plan, um, and also kind of waff. One thing that Elizabeth Warren, I feel, does with um, her debate performances is when she's asked a question on health care, well, Remember when Sanders was asked, will you raise taxes to pay for Medicare for all? And he said, yes, but you're going to pay far less for health care. Like you're going to pay basically nothing for health care, but you have to pay a tiny bit more in taxes. Yeah, he uh, did acknowledge yeah, yeah, Warren, a little more. Warren doesn't really answer clearly. One thing about Warren is I feel like she's a bit too – well, uh, I feel and I think that Bernie should expose that she's a bit too Washingtonian. Like Warren just keeps saying – costs will go down for middle class families costs will go up for the rich but she doesn't really answer the question directly which i think is a key flaw two points i want to make on what you said there i think that um you know there's a there's attacking your primary opponent and then there's attacking your primary opponent too much that it gives them fuel for, for donald trump to do the same so I think Democrats' first priority in attacking should be to attack Trump and then primary opponents because we know who the real enemy is. And then the second point I want to make is Bernie Sanders had said, has said affirmatively that taxes will go up with his health care plan. Um, he hasn't gotten that much flack for it. Uh, there, is peop- there are people who want Elizabeth Warren to say that just so Republicans can have a talking point. Why does, oh, why does, Bernie, why does Bernie get away with saying that taxes will raised no. Warren doesn't. I think this is a t- terrible mischaracterization here. I like that Bernie said that taxes will go up because they will. He's being yeah. honest with the American people. That's what we need from Warren, too. If Warren says that, you know, then Trump's going to replay that 400 well, million bad, times. Because it's her policy. But I feel like... you got to stick by your policies and you got to be Amer- honest with the American people or, or else you're lying to them. I don't know. I just feel like there's more pressure on Warren... You know, if she says that, there would be more pressure on her than Bernie Sanders. Because why hasn't Donald, why hasn't Donald Trump said Bernie Sanders is going to raise your taxes? We're talking about the nomination of the Democratic Party. And if Warren wants to be the nominee, she should be upfront with the American people and talk about how it will raise taxes. Yeah. I think that will benefit Warren in the long run, because when if she is the nominee, she gets on the debate stage with Trump. Trump's going to pound that into her. She, he's going to keep asking her, are taxes going to go up? And if she doesn't say yes, she's just going to look bad. Yeah. So if she says it now in a better environment, it'll be way better for her. Campaign. Henry, I yeah. think the reason Trump isn't attacking Bernie Sanders is because Bernie Sanders has admitted that taxes will go up. And so that's that just good. like yeah. beating a dead horse. Warren has not admitted them. Yeah. And, and it's obvious that they will have to to some extent and that's why he's going after her is because she's clearly not being completely upfront. And she can't go the rest of the year saying costs will go up. That is not sustainable. She needs to find a way to like stop avoiding the question. But it's also it's all so tough. Um oh, we've yeah. Well going back to Bernie, I think that what his strategy I think that what it should be is to wait until the field really narrows like it's doing now and then be Elizabeth Warren. And I think that I'm not saying that he's able to do that, but I think if he does do that, I think then he'll have a chance as the progressive candidate. I think that he needs to wait until it's just him and Warren as the progressive candidates, which it really is now. And I think that now and in the next debate and then the January debate are his times to do this. Yeah. See, for for me, as a you know moderate uh, Democrat and uh, Biden, Klobuchar, Buttigieg supporter, uh, my biggest hope is that Warren and and uh, Bernie are one of the longest uh, you know candidates in the race. Because the earlier one of them drops out, that means the majority of the whoever drops out votes will go to the other progressive candidate. And that's when they can overtake the moderate candidates leading. So you want them to split the votes. Yeah, that makes sense. 
I would love, yeah, that's, that's what I'm hoping for. And, but. you know, we're pretty much down to four. Let's see who will be next. I mean, like, four major candidates or others. But, yeah, um, I mean, 2020 is fascinating. We also had one person write in with a question, uh, how is life going? So, how's life going, people? Pretty uh, good. Uh, decent. Decent. Okay. I, uh, yeah. How was your Thanksgivings, everybody? Good. Pretty good. Good. That's good to hear. Um, I also, wait, I have one more question about yeah, yeah, yeah. politics and about the debates. Do you feel that um, the moderators should be giving Andrew Yang more time? He's yes. consistently no. been given no. like little to no time, despite yes. no. pulling above many of the people who are given more time than Adam, him. I am in full agreement with that um, statement. No. Because with MSNBC... I don't know. Well, He's getting the time he needs. Well, with MSNBC... It is a media blackout. Well, yeah, but with MSNBC, they have been... Uh, this is they've been consistently um, they have consistently shown Yang less in debates and in like polling graphics. This isn't something that was just a one time occurrence. This is something yeah. that's been consistent. Uh, they they just don't really care about Yang's candidacy as much as some of the others. Uh, they care about candidates who are polling less than he is. They yeah. they give those candidates more speaking time than he does he has like the biggest deficit between polling numbers and actual speaking time okay yeah. so but every other candidate on that stage is talking about an is talking about an issue that really resonates with americans andrew yang is but talking about freaking robots that's not Henry. that's not yeah but to could, the, could to robots fair. actually resonate with americans because what it's if not like, what the all... single mother working two jobs cares about right yes, now. Yes, but what if that single well, mother working look two at the jobs polling, loses though, one of those fair. jobs due to automation? That's the thing. Mm. Ooh, that, was, that was good. I yeah. set myself up for that. You know, I think <laughs> that Yang, he's clearly proven that he's not as much of a, I'm not Yang gang or anything, but he's proven that he's not just a joke, and I think that he needs to be given, because he does make the best of the limited time that he's given, and I think that if you gave him a little more time, I think that you know, I think that it would give him a more fair chance. Yeah, I think in general the media's coverage of Yang has been, you know, I guess not too fair. I think as far as his time at debates, I didn't have a huge problem with it. I think I would have liked him to be at a little more time. I, I think the more the coverage of his campaign, and especially by MSB, MSNBC, you know, there's been occurrences where they they haven't really treated his campaign fairly that i would you know like to see happen less it is interesting but um yeah so more to come is there griffin there's a debate coming up next week right um yeah it's the thursday before break thursday oh that's actually kind of nice i like that so yeah yeah, um we'll probably have an episode out then uh this quad pod was very good because people are talking yes um, over an hour too yeah. yeah uh just like maybe a few points i'd like to mention so um First, Correct, a congressman yeah. from California, Duncan Hunter, he's resigning due to a campaign finance scandal, which I actually looked into his campaign finance scandal. Uh, he used um, campaign contributions to pay for a stay at a ski resort when he was broke, which, uh, well, first of all, why go to a ski resort when you're broke? But it actually wasn't that much money. It was only about $900 or so which is fairly small. Like, it's a very small fraction of what he would actually raise, but he is resigning over it. There are actually three Republicans who are just so fed up with him that they were running to replace him even before he announced he would resign. I know one of them's a moderate, one of them's, like, establishment, and one of them's really conservative. Hmm. Um, Also, uh, North Carolina, which is very much a swing state. North Carolina's, like a true purple state. Uh, they have only three Democrats in Congress. Uh, and there are... There are... 19 districts. 10, there, there are 10 Republicans and three Democrats in North Carolina's congressional delegation, despite the fact that North Carolina's a swing state, mainly due to gerrymandering, which is the nerdy word that means redrawing congressional district lines to suit one's own party better. So those blue districts are really super blue. And those red districts are, well, and and districts that would normally be like somewhat blue are now red because of the way these districts are drawn. They're drawn like irregular, like they have weird shapes. 
Uh, yep. Like if if you want to see a really good example, it's like a Maryland. what's it like an upside down dog floating like on you, a skateboard? Yeah. Yeah, you could yeah. see one where it's like uh, Donald Duck kicking Goofy. That was <laughs> that was in Pennsylvania. But anyhow, the there's redistricting that um, now evens out the playing field. Just make so them that, squares. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So they are uh, more easily intelligible shapes. So. A couple of Republican members of Congress are, like, in serious danger. In fact, one is retiring. So, all told, Democrats could gain two or maybe even three seats if they're lucky. Perhaps awesome. even four on their best night in North Carolina alone uh, with these new district boundaries. So, yeah. um, so, if any, like, Democrat wants to invest in North Carolina, it's, it's, it's a, a good, good opportunity. Like, you yeah. can do that. You can keep the governorship, and they could knock off Tom Tillis. So. Yeah, please do that. So, yeah, yeah um, closing notes. Uh, I'd like to remind everybody to consider donating to Fair Fight 2020, which is Stacey Abrams' campaign to, in, to make sure that uh, voters do not get disenfranchised. I'd also want to tell all our, all our viewers to rate us and review us. Uh, Griffin, did you review us the other day, Griffin? Because there was a review yes. saying... Yes, I actually So did. who is Larry Sharp, then? Uh, um... Larry Sharp? That's yeah, because it said that Larry Sharp reviewed this podcast. Um, you're, you're also named Larry Sharp? Yeah, that, oh. that was my name. Okay, Larry Sharp. Yeah, and, you know, any Alaskan viewers who are about to give us a one-star review for Henry's <laughs> unfair stereotypes, uh, let me that. just reassure you guys that we're, we're big Alaskan fans oh, here. Lisa Murkowski no is an amazing senator. No need to and get are very good. In <laughs> fact, I might visit Alaska this summer. So. Oh, really? I go every summer. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah, but uh, Alaska is very great. Uh, Democratic politicians. Yeah, every state just has some Republican like, politicians. Every state, yeah. every state has like good people and good things to do and good places to visit and the bad. There's the good, the bad, the ugly in every single state. Like yeah, no state country. is perfect in this country. So yep. And uh, yeah, we are closing in on 69 minutes, our longest ever podcast. Nice. Very nice. nice. <laughs> no, actually, why don't you just extend this to 69 minutes? Well, okay, just Griffin. All right. Thank guys. you so much, okay. everybody, for coming, for uh, listening to this podcast. Have a good night. Yeah. Good night, folks.